0: Hey, everyone. I'm Chad Cannon. I'm the composer for the Netflix documentary American Factory. I'm here today on Film Music Media talking with Kaya. Awesome. Chad, how are
1: you doing this this morning? How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat today. It's uh, such an honor.
0: Yeah, likewise. Um,
1: So, yeah, to start off, I would love to kind of know going back to kind of, I guess, Chad's origin story, kind of going back to your childhood, uh, what were those kind of first moments that you remember uh, music kind of coming into your life? And at what point did it become not just a, an interest or a hobby, but you wanted to pursue this as a career?
0: Well, first of all, music came into my life rather forcefully. <laughs> I had a very strict mother who required practicing every single day from, you know, when I was age four she had me start on violin. Oh, wow. Um, I started on the Suzuki method. Dr. Shinichi Suzuki was this Japanese, you know, teacher who believed that music was like a language. And so kids should start learning it before they could read and write. And so that was the method that brought me into, into music. And It wasn't until I was about 12 or 13 that I realized I actually liked it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you were kind of uh, apprehensive at it at first, almost like
0: a chore? Yeah, I mean, I was always kind of a passionate person and kind of bossy to other people. I was the youngest of six siblings, so I think Um, I was adults a lot. So I was like, why don't these other kids get what adults think, you know? (laughs) Um, But... When I was 12, my violin ensemble had a chance to go to Chicago and perform at this big conference, a big Suzuki conference. And that was the first time that I realized music could sort of be a bridge to the world. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which Mm. is not super rural or anything, but it wasn't like New York City, you know. So um, going to Chicago with my violin kind of opened a lot of doors for me as far as my imagination and what music could be in my life. And. And then later on in high school, I I discovered film music specifically, um, largely thanks to the fact that I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So (laughs) Howard Shore was a big influence in my life, even though I didn't really know that's who it was until a little bit later, you know.
1: Right. I remember those days where you just you're you're attached to the music, but then you start kind of putting the names to them and you go, wait, who's this person? And then you start discovering their entire filmography.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, so, did you, uh, when you decided, when you discovered film, you had music, you are kind of growing this passion. Did you always want to become uh, kind of a composer for visual media, or was it just I want to write concerts, I want to write symphonic music? And when did it become like I want to become a composer for for film and TV?
0: Well, long before I wanted to become a film composer, I wanted to be a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> I was. I was. My brothers, you know, introduced me to all the rock bands of the 80s, 90s, 70s, 60s even. <laughs> they had this huge CD collection in our basement, so I would listen to a lot of stuff. Um, my first concert that I went to was Billy Joel. Nice. <laughs> I saw them at the Delta Center, which is the old name for where the Utah Jazz used to play. I mean, they still play there, but the, the, the arena name has changed. Um, but I, yeah, I really fell in love with U2. Oh, nice. I- Rock band, and I really wanted to be Bono. <laughs> so I actually started a rock band in high school that was basically a YouTube imitation band. We did play a lot of YouTube cover songs, but I wrote a lot of songs as well. We and we recorded stuff in my mom's basement, you know. And, um, <laughs> so that experience actually, I think, is the most direct link to what I am now, which is like, you know, film composers are not just composers; you're also a, a Music producer. Right. I didn't realize that until I got into it. That a lot of what I do is produce. It's not just writing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really wanted to become a rock star first, and then I sort of discovered that. Hey, I don't really understand how this, how to get from this key to that key, and hey, how did the Beatles do that? You know, and so I started thinking about music theory, and that actually led me back into classical music. More intensely, I got really into contemporary concert music, and that's what I studied in college.
1: <clears throat> right. I mean, you yeah. you went to Harvard yeah. and Juilliard. You got some good good education there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had I had great teachers at both of those institutions, um, and very different kinds of music education at, at both schools. You know, Juilliard's a very performance and um, American focused. Mm institution right whereas harvard has a lot of european influence and it's very much you know it's much more academic a lot of experimental music being written at harvard um so i kind of got the best of both worlds i would think between those two schools um but yeah so i wasn't set on writing for visual media media necessarily but i i think i i re- Deep in my heart, ever since my Lord of the Rings fandom days, which aren't aren't over, by the way. (laughs) They're Um, they're
1: never over. They're they're never never. over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, after school, I think a lot of uh, young folks just find themselves in this position of what to do next. So, I mean, what did you do next after school? Did you work kind of the first jobs you had? Did you move to LA. I know you spent some time in Japan and in Asia. I mean, what were the kind of next steps in your in your journey?
0: Yeah, so a little context there. I grew up in a Mormon family mm-hmm. and there's this culture slash expectation that that especially Mormon men and now it's Mormon women as well, will serve a mission for the church. So you go and do volunteer work for the church for mm-hmm. two years. And I just happen to get sent to Japan even though I had studied German and Spanish, and I never had studied Japanese. In fact, the only connection I had to Japan was Dr. Suzuki from when I was young. You right. know? And I didn't even really realize that what, you know, I knew basically nothing about Japan, but uh, my mission experience really um, changed me. I became very, you know, I fell in love with Japan. I got to know the culture really well. And when I got back to Harvard, I really wanted to keep Japan as part of my career path. Mm. Um, so I ended up working for Midori Goto, who's a famous Japanese violinist, on her music charity projects in Asia. So I went with her on eight separate tours
1: wow.
0: where we went and performed in hospitals and schools and uh, refugee camps all over Asia. Myanmar, Nepal, Bangladesh, and a bunch of times in Japan itself. Um and I was doing that while I was a student at Juilliard and then also while I started working here in L.A. right after I graduated. So in answer to your question, when I, my next step after I graduated school was um, I actually moved to L.A. and I started working for Conrad Pope.
1: Oh, yeah, Conrad. I love Conrad.
0: Yeah, he's, he, I had a mutual connection to him through Phil Klein, who is a family friend of my wife's family. And Phil Klein's another fabulous composer. Yeah. By the way. He just had a big film come out. Um, called The Last Full Measure.
1: Right, right. Which
0: everyone should check out. It's a gorgeous score. Um, But while I was working for Conrad, I was developing all these connections in Asia while I was working with Midori. So Midori actually introduced me to Joe Hisaishi, knowing that I was into film music. And of course, Joe Hisaishi is the composer for all the Studio Ghibli Miyazaki animated And he's a fantastic... Um, musician and conductor, and and that has become a relationship that i treasure deeply because he's taught me so much. As you know, he started hiring me as an arranger and orchestrator, so I got to work firsthand with him and with his handwritten scores. Wow! And transforming those into these symphonic suites, which then he you know performs for his live concerts.
1: Absolutely!
0: Um, wow. So yeah, my my path has sort of been. All over in some ways, but <laughs> the general gist of it has been: yeah, I, I really love film music, but I also love live concert performance music, or film music in live set, live concert settings. And so I've I've sort of um, kept a foot also in Asia as well as the U.S.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and well, that, you well,
0: yeah. those goals. And,
1: and you, I mean, you got to work on some amazing uh, films as a an arranger and an orchestrator, and you got to, of course, work with. Uh, through Conrad, I guess, on Alexander, with Alexander Zaslav, and he worked with Howard Shore as well, right?
0: Yeah, through Conrad again. Yeah, yeah.
1: So that must have been a pretty awesome moment, since you're such a huge fan of Howard. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. I was sort of in <laughs> shock when Conrad called and said, "Hey, we have this this little gig with Peter Jackson and Howard Shore," and I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> <laughs> I tried to play it cool, but I think Conrad knew. Yeah, this is a big deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: So, I mean, did that kind of give you a lot of the groundwork to... So when you started doing your own solo work, were you a little bit more confident, maybe, in in your abilities to tackle something, like your own film?
0: Absolutely. So watching the process, you know, hearing Howard's mock-ups go from mock-up, you know, MIDI mock-up orchestration into the score, into watching Conrad conduct the live recordings, and then seeing how that ended up in the films, you know, that... Taught me a lot about how the film music process works, yeah. um, especially in the context of live recorded, you know, scores. Um, so definitely the the skills that I got, especially using instruments that I don't play myself, such as woodwinds, brass, percussion. Um, that was just an education. Much better education than whatever I was taught in school. You, yeah.
1: know? <laughs> you can't get better than that.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that really definitely built my confidence up. So that you know, when a film like American Factory came along, I felt very confident that I could write a woodwind-heavy score that actually was, you know, not a piece of crap. <laughs> well, hopefully,
1: <laughs> no, it's not. It's a it's a beautiful score and a fantastic <laughs> film and. Um, So yeah, let's talk about American Factory. How did that uh, kind of uh, come to you? Did you have to pursue it? Did somebody reach out to you? Uh,
0: So in 2016, I was really fortunate to be selected to be part of the Sundance Composer Labs. Right. Um, I had applied a few years in a row, which I think is pretty typical because it's such a competitive program and they kind of keep an eye on you as you apply over the years to see how you progress, you know and I had scored this um, Japanese Hi- Hiroshima-themed film called Paper Lanterns. Yes. And that score for me was the first time I feel like I really found my own voice. Mm, yeah. I mean, I'm still trying to find my voice. I think we always are until we die maybe, but...
1: <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, yeah.
0: That film was the first time I like came across this sound that I felt, wow, that, that really feels like me, and I put my whole soul into that film because I really cared about the project and... And the story that was being told, you know, it's this—it's this beautiful story about a, a an A-bomb survivor who's Japanese who found out while he was young that there had been 12 American POWs, prisoners of war, that had been killed by the atomic bomb, and Americans didn't know this. Wow. Like most Americans have no idea that 12 Americans also died in that bomb. Yeah. Um, And I was just so touched that this man would like spend his life reaching out to the families of the 12 Americans who died in Hiroshima. So I, in response to hearing his passion for his, you know, mission in life, I really wrote music that came from deep inside me, you know? Yeah. And that's the first time that had really happened in the context of film for me. Um, So I when I had applied to Sundance I really focused on this paper lantern score cuz I felt like hey this is actually me I feel un- like it's a unique sound that I've been able to uncover and and I think the committee I guess felt this, felt that yeah this, this is something unique so they let me into the program um and the Sundance labs are fantastic I encourage any young composers listening to this to apply to them um the lab experience really transformed me because, you know, it gave me an opportunity to experiment in the context of being around other young composers who, who are experimenting also, right. and directors and sound designers there, and so you really get a chance to, like, push the limits of what you're used to doing. And and also it gave me so many more insights into. Storytelling, specifically non fiction sto- storytelling, because I had done the documentary labs, um, which now I think they're combined into one. But mm. it used to be that there was a doc labs and a feature labs. Okay. Um, but sorry, long story short, the, the Sundance Labs people had remembered that I had the strong Asia connection. So when they had heard that there was a film coming up about, a Chinese billionaire buying a factory in Ohio, and the whole film was going to be about this cultural clash or cultural exchange. Right. Um, I think they they remembered me and referred me to the directors, Steve Bogner and Julia Reichert. Um, so that was the connection. The Sundance Labs is where I made the connection with the with the directors. So yeah,
1: I mean, I mean, yeah, you had two great directors with Stephen and and Julia. Um, what were the kind of initial discussions about music at the start? Was it uh what what was the approach that they wanted and what did you want your music to achieve in this documentary?
0: Interestingly, the first thing they said to me was and this has probably never been said in the history of <laughs> any director composer combo was we want a, a lot of woodwinds in this <laughs> score. <laughs> and I was like, "What? That's so unusual." I mean, I was happy, but um, apparently, Julia had gone and seen, you know, as a classical concert in Ohio recently. With where there had been on the program uh, a Mozart woodwind serenade, that mm. was you know very uh, reed heavy, like lots of bassoons, lots of oboe, and French horn, and then like two double basses or something. And she was just really taken in by that sound, and she had this insight that hey, I think this like woodwind reedy sound is going to work well against all the factory sounds that are because right. the factory itself is really really loud um, there's all this machinery and it's just this giant hall that amplifies all that you know yeah, so yeah. One, of the, one of the physical challenges all these workers have is that you know you go in there day after day and your ears are just tired right like yeah and the sound designer had actually gone to the factory for three days and recorded all the all these you know machines and he made a whole library of factory sounds wow. which he actually shared with me when we first started working um, and in the end i think julia was right that this woodwind there's something about the organic feel you know the the woody feel of the woodwinds that works well against all this glass and machinery and mm-hmm. metal and cement that you hear in the film so so i credit her for that for basically making the instrumentation choice. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And you mentioned uh, on on, the, on Paper Lanterns how you became so kind of emotionally invested in the subject matter. Do you find that to be really... I mean, of course, I would think it would be very helpful from a storytelling point of view. Did you find that was the same way for for this film? Did you feel an attachment, or did you have to kind of work your way into it?
0: Um, I The film, to their credit, they've created a film that, like, even if there wasn't a single note of music in it, it's a really compelling story. Yeah. And the characters you meet, it's just really obvious that the, that and Steve have a deep love and respect for every single person they filmed in this movie. They weren't out to like expose right. some, it's not an expository <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> documentary, like, you know, um, Michael Moore style or something. You know, it's right. it's really yeah. all about they really spent years with these people watching their you know, employment situation unfold and kind of getting a sense for who they were as individuals. And that that same thing applies to the billionaire who's, you know, the main kind of cavalier figure in the movie. Right, yeah. Uh, they spent a lot of time with him with, you know, their Chinese producers there of course helping to translate and everything, but um, that also touched me that like Julie and Steve care so much about these people. And then also personally, I, I have this, you know, passion for cultural exchange and having people meet face to face. So they understand each other and become friends, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a couple characters in the movie that really do that. I don't know if you've seen the film, but there's this Chinese guy named Wong who comes from Fujian province. He's, He's worked for Fuyao Glass for, like, 25 years or something. Right, right, yeah. And then they send him to Ohio where he's away from his family and kids with no additional pay. He just has to go. And he is, like, such a good guy. You know, he yeah, he right. really makes friends with some of the other American workers. And in particular, there's this guy named Rob who ends up getting fired in the end. But he he... Rob is, like, even-headed enough to... Uh, or, sorry, level-headed enough to, to like, see beyond the fact that he got fired. He still yeah. really cares about the people he met, and he learned a lot from them. You know, he has this very positive, optimistic worldview. And so this friendship between Rob, Rob and Wong, like, really touched me. And I that's probably the story in the film that I became most emotionally attached to. Mm, yeah. Um, and But the difference between Paper Lanterns and this film was... Well, there's many differences, obviously, but the, right. the biggest one for me was just the timeline. Like, we were so crunched for time getting American Factory finished in time to have it premiere at Sundance. Right, right. Um, compared to how long, say, the Lindsay Utes, the editor, was on the film. She was on the film for, like, a year and a half. Wow. And on the film for, like, less than five months, you know? Yeah. So... Just the amount of time you have with the with the subject matter it makes a big difference.
1: Absolutely. Um, um, so, oh no, sorry, go ahead.
0: <laughs> just last thought is, but nevertheless, I do I that I could tell that this film was going to have a very positive impact in the world, and so in that sense, I was emotionally invested, and I tried to um, to make that come through in the score. Um, one of the challenges in this movie, though, of course, is is the the number of cues there's a lot of starting and stopping mm. and whereas in paper lanterns i like basically the director kind of wanted music almost the whole time mm. um whereas in this film it's like okay we need 30 seconds here 45 seconds there i think there's like 35 cues in the movie wow <laughs> so it's a lot of short cues you know and it's a little harder to like have that feel like an even arch from beginning to end when you have so many starts and stops.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, But just kind of looking at whether it's American factory or paper, uh, or anything, any the documentaries, uh, genre as a whole, what, what, what should a doc score do and what shouldn't it do? Is it any different than scoring a, a fictional narrative? I mean, how I know you, you're dealing with real people, real lives. Do you feel more of a, I guess you don't want to get too overindulgent and too big.
0: Yeah, you have to be. I think we talked about this when you moderated the panel at Comic Con. Yeah, like yeah. San Diego discussion we had, but um, yeah, I mean it's it's not Star Wars or Lord <laughs> of the Rings, right? Like, I mean, in some ways, it this story in particular kind of is because it's like this huge. What this, the film is about individuals, but. In the end, it's about this gargantuan thing that's happening between the United States economy and the Chinese economy. I mean, it's other than, like, climate change, it's probably the biggest story of the 21st century.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: In terms of sheer numbers of people involved and the impact it has on on the lives of pretty much everyone on Earth because of the environmental impact that also comes from that relationship. Um, But that said, obviously, like, you can't put a Darth Vader theme on <laughs> on the billionaire to make him look like...
1: Well, oh, you, you could. Know. You just might get a weird reaction <laughs> from people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get the point, though. It's got to yeah, be yeah. like, you have to walk this line between, yeah, you want to get people into it and and you want to convey emotion, but you can't, um, what's the word they use, like editorialize
1: mm, Yeah.
0: to put your own... You can't... Like, I don't personally know most of the people in this movie. I, I did get to meet some of them after the film came out, but, but you know, it's their story, not mine. Right, so. you can't
1: project yourself too much into it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, the film has such an amazing response, and it's on Netflix, so if anyone hasn't watched it, you know, check it out. And, of course, it's from uh, High Ground Productions, which is uh, from uh, Barack and Michelle Obama. So, I mean, it's really an important film, and it's covering some really important subject matter. And you guys got nominated for an Oscar. I mean, what was your reaction when that happened?
0: I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, obviously there were um, indicators that we might be one of the nominees eventually because, you know, it kept doing well at all these other right. indicator awards, the Gotham Awards, the IDA Awards. Um but from my perspective, the sad thing about the Oscars is that more people didn't get nominated because there's so yeah. many amazing docs this year, like One Child Nation. I really recommend people watch that. Amazing. That, that film blew me away. Um, Apollo 11. Yeah. Um, anyway, there's so many docs this year that people should watch. But, but that said, of course, it's, it's really exciting. And, and it just means that more people will get to see the film or be triggered to be interested in watching the film which which of course just raises the impact of the whole of the whole story and I think this this film is one that that needs to be seen I mean like whether you're a business school student an economist or you're like an elementary school student and you're sort of wondering how the world works as far yeah. as like what is a factory and why are all my toys made in China you know it's like right pretty much anyone on earth who watches this will learn something you know so it's really it's a very positive film that way like i don't think it distorts the truth at all mm-hmm. i think it's one of these few docs that like really tells the truth
1: right just being kind of subjective and covering everything yeah um and i mean it's and it's on, we mentioned that it was on netflix and i just wanted to get your perspective on cuz streaming of course is exploded and everyone's either on you know amazon netflix hulu And I really do think that's been such a great thing for for documentaries because I feel like I'm watching more documentaries. I know my wife is watching more of them. People I talk about is watching more of them. Do you think, I mean, you mentioned One Child Nation. I think that's on Amazon. But Do you think this is a good thing for the genre that people are experiencing more of of documentaries?
0: Absolutely. Um, In fact, one of the reasons Steve and Julia and the team decided to go with the Netflix offer, you know, they had offers from a bunch of different um, or at least from what I heard, they mm-hmm. had a lot of op- opportunities to sell this film to to whoever. But they ended up going with Netflix because, in part, because Netflix has this thing where um, they they allow you to like put on community screenings of the film at no mm-hmm. charge. Oh wow! Yeah, um, I don't I don't I can't tell you all the specifics of that program, but there's something like that. that, that and I know they're doing like social good screenings of this film all over the country. Um, And also just the fact that it makes it accessible to to the people who are being portrayed in the film. Yeah. Like these workers in the middle of Ohio who wouldn't be able to go to the art theaters in like Cambridge, Massachusetts or, (laughs) you know, Lincoln Center in New York. Like they don't have access to all these awesome docs, you know, that are being shown in the big cities. But it's hard to see, you know, niche films in, in your small town. Um, so that's another reason they chose to go with Netflix is the, the accessibility for everybody.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: and and to your point about docs being more, you know, readily watchable by so many people. Yeah, I myself am watching more docs, and I think it raises the profile of documentaries vis-à-vis the, you know, big budget, blockbuster films. For sure. Um, which I think is a really good thing.
1: I do too. Yeah, I think it's, it's great that, the, that we're getting more saturated with this kind of content. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's such a fantastic documentary, Chad. And I want to congratulate you on, on it. And the score is beautiful. The, the film turned out so amazing. And, and hopefully next time we talk, you'll, it will have an Oscar to its name. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, any of the, Whoever wins deserves it I mean it really the five nominees this year and the 15 shortlists yeah they're all great dozens of other films that didn't get the shortlist you know all those people would have been equally deserving
1: but absolutely so if you and if you live in a city that you know sometimes they'll do documentary uh, marathons for all the nominees I'd urge anyone to go out and check them I know Mark light sometimes does it Lamely, all these folks um, so yeah, yeah.
0: the Lemley, the Lemley in Santa Monica I think is showing this this week
1: yeah yeah. And, of course, if you have Netflix, you can check it out there, too, in the comfort, yeah. of, comfort of your own home and your PJs. <laughs> yep. um, um, Chad, again, I want to thank you for for chatting today. It was so much fun, and um, <laughs> always a pleasure.
0: Guys, <laughs> Thanks for all, all the storytelling you're doing with, with film composers. Oh, no worries. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's another a, form of documentary work.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's what <laughs> I'm trying to – that's that's how I look at it a little bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it really is, and and – stories that you know most people don't hear too much about film composers so i think it's really cool that you're doing that
1: oh thank you so much and thank you for i guess taking the time today i know how busy you are and how busy everyone is so i always appreciate the time and uh, yeah likewise and i hopefully we'll talk soon <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks kaya